If you, for whatever reason, weren't here uh, when I announced, when, I, we, when we did the announcements, we have a children's worship bulletin. If you're a child, I hope you guys grab this. This is going to be really useful for you. And uh, I hope you can, I hope this helps you pay attention to uh, the sermon passage here that we have this morning. We continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel. I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles. If you're using one of those black Bibles in front of you, it can be found on page 238. And we are in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now, this uh, book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, it falls, these books fall within the category of the historical writings of the Bible. Um, But some people might think there's not so much relevance for us today, but there's great relevance. Remember this from last week and previous sermons? The king that we talk about, or the throne that we talk about, is the throne of your Savior if you're a Christian. So when we think about the history here, you're thinking about the history of Jesus Christ's throne, really. And so I hope that you see the relevance here. This is ultimately about your own very king. And not only that, though, but as we think about kingship and leadership, as we often do in 1 Samuel, we have to remember that we, too, as people made in the image of God, that we have been charged to exercise dominion over the world. We're supposed to care for the world, right? So as we look at Saul, positives and negatives, and David, positives and negatives as well, and really any, any leader in Scripture, we too are to be learning from them. What does it look like to lead, to exercise dominion in God's world as we live underneath Christ, the Lord and Savior, through whom all things were made, for whom all things were made? So I hope as we come to this passage, you see that there is actually great relevance. It's not just Old Testament stories that don't have anything to do with us today. In fact, they have lots of relevance for us today. If you're joining us for the first time, 1 Samuel is a book about God's Old Testament people starting off their national life with an earthly king. They start off their national life with an earthly king. Now, that sounds good, right? I mean, what kind of people do not need a leader? We all need leaders. So the problem is here, they already had a leader, a king even. They had God to be their king. He was the one who, think about the Exodus, had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. He, he himself was the one who gathered them together. He had given them his very own law and he had pledged his very own presence. He had guided them. And he had given them, in fact, their, the law in order to uphold the flourishing of life as they lived underneath his rule. But the people had rejected that God, this God, the God of the Bible, as king over them. This was like Israel's emancipation project, where they wanted to be just like all the other nations, to have a powerful king right here to fight their battles for them in the way that they thought they needed to be fought. And they think that this is what would lead them to safety. And in an act of judgment, in many ways, God gives them over to their own desires. He tells the prophet Samuel, whom the book is named after, to anoint a man named Saul to be king over the people. And by all accounts, Saul was a perfect fit for the people. In many ways, he he was like a leader after their own hearts, a leader who had reflected their own hearts. He was a qualified leader, according to their own own minds. In chapter 9, you don't have to turn there, but uh, Saul is a man who comes from money. And you know, oftentimes with money comes power and ability. He comes from a family of wealth. And then physically, actually, let's just go ahead and look there. Uh, 
1 Samuel chapter 9. Go ahead and flip over there. You see this physical description, which is actually really prominent there. 1 Samuel chapter 9, you know, we already know that he's a man of money. And then in verse 2, look there, he had a son, this Benjamin, had a son whose name was Saul. And a a handsome young man. And there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. This is like Adrian Salazar equivalent. (laughs) And I'm sure Akane finds him a handsome young man. So right here, he meets a lot of people's checklists, right, for what a leader should be. And frankly, maybe meets the checklist of what one might think a good husband should be. A man of wealth, good-looking, taller by a whole head than everybody else. But friends, it turns out that he was actually a really bad leader in God's eyes. While he did have military victories, as God said he would, we saw from last week's passage that Saul was a man who followed his own wisdom and had rejected God's. And this gets him into big-time trouble because, right, all he has at the end of the day is his own wisdom. And what kind of world would that be if everyone were just sort of king of themselves, living according to their own wisdom? This would be a very scary place. So it means that he struggles to really trust God. And this ultimately leads him to not pleasing God. Again, he is a king fit for the people because he does just like the people. Saul is fearful. He is proud. And because he rejected God and his word, God judges Saul and rejects him as king. Well, if the tall, handsome, rich dude is not God's choice for king, then the question is, well, who is? And what marks this leader that God would so choose? Well, friends, in our passage this morning, we have an answer. We see God's choice of a king for his people. God's choice of a king for his people. And where man looks at the appearance, God looks at the heart. That's sort of like the big idea of today's sermon. God's choice of a king for his people, where man looks at the appearance, God looks at the heart. We don't really have points, but, uh, you know, it's just, we're just going to follow in the sections here. And we see in our first section of 1 Samuel 16, we see that God chooses for himself a king over his people. God chooses for himself a king over his people. I'll go ahead and read verses 1 to 5, uh, you know, to get the setting here, or to get into the story. The Lord looked... The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what, to, what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare you. Let's go ahead and stop right there. Now, you see where Samuel is when the passage begins. He's grieving. And this is the same, too, at the end of 15. You look there at verse 34. Uh, the Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house. This is after Saul had sinned and rejected rejected the word of the Lord. Look at verse 35, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Saul grieved over Saul. Samuel grieved over Saul. You see that God had given Saul certain direction, twice even, 
And Saul persistently rejected God's word. He simply chose to go his own way and not God's. And Samuel, the prophet of God in 1511, he's angry at at what's going on there. He sees Saul, the man that he anointed himself, and Saul's turning away consistently. And so he cries out to the Lord all night. This This seems to be, to some degree, some sort of righteous anger, perhaps. And for Samuel, there's great grief. There's grief over what's going on. And as we try to understand what's going on with Samuel, like why is he grieving so much? We have to remember all that is at stake in Saul's kingship. What is at stake in Saul's kingship? What is at stake is the very success of Israel as a nation. So you imagine the weight upon Samuel the prophet, who's the guy who anointed this man to be king. If you flip back to, to 1 Samuel chapter 12, look at 14 and 15. 1 Samuel chapter 12, 14 and 15, you see here uh, what God is telling um, basically the whole entire nation. He says there in 14, For if you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Skip down to 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Imagine that pressure. If you are a leader of peoples, you, you would know this type of pressure here. If you are a supervisor and such, you know that, that the things that you do have consequ- has consequences. And so Samuel seems to know this as well. I imagine he had great hopes for Saul. Out of the period of the judges, you keep in mind, right? This was a time where Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in his own ways, in his own eyes. And so here, all of a sudden, you have Saul, and there seems to be some degree of hope here. I think he's looking for a fresh start. But you see that with Saul's failure, Samuel is angry and even sorrowful in his failures. What will happen to the people? Will they have a leader who leads them to trust in God and give them an example through his own very living of what faith in the living God looks like and an example of what godliness looks like? I mean, we know what it's like to bank our hopes on other people, right? Imagine the girlfriend dating, you know, a fiancé. She hopes that the fiancé will lead and support and provide direction and strength and provide all those things that she desperately, so desperately feels like she needs. But then in marriage, she starts realizing a whole lot of things. Reality sets in that he, too, is a sinner, and his struggle with, for example, lust, which might lead her to feel, feel so much like she's been abandoned. Or let's say his struggle is laziness or selfishness, or sometimes he might be a little uh, neglectful of others. Right? This might lead to despair, thinking like, what's going to happen? You're not thinking of that one particular moment. You're thinking about your whole entire lives. And then if you have children, even more so. You know, that security, comfort, Strength, those of her own and her children, is at stake. Is this the way it's going to be? 
And even if you don't have a family, you know what it's like, you know what it's like as individuals, right? We might bank our hopes on ourselves. What are the signs that we bank our hopes on ourselves? Well, you're a perfectionist. Those of you who are perfectionists, right? You might know that if you're not perfect and somebody finds out, well, that just exposes everything, right? Your boss catches that mistake that you made, that he, in fact, knows that everybody else makes or she knows that everybody else makes, and so you despair so badly. Or take the spiritual realm. You can't believe that you were tempted in that way or this way. Or you sin like those sinners over there. And so you might despair, thinking you're more sinful than you initially thought. Well, friends, I think Samuel here is realizing that he has banked his hopes, it seems, on Saul, and so he is grieved. What does God do? What does God do? To Samuel, who's turned around, right? This devastation happened to Samuel, who's turned around and looking at the kingdom dreams sort of go up in flames with Saul as Saul so quickly declines. Well, God so helpfully just turns, turns Samuel's face almost to look at him, to trust in him again. You look there at 16.1, right? God just comes along. You see there, uh, actually go back to 15, and uh, you see this contrast here um, that's being given to us. It says there in 35, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted, that is, he was sorrowful. He was sorrowful over Saul's actions. That's what we learned about. He, was, he regretted, that is, he was sorrowful that he had made Saul king over Israel because he's a bad leader. And then in 16.1, look what God does, right? We don't really know how, long time, how much time has passed, but the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Since... I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Isn't that interesting? Saul's sitting there, you know, still staring at the past or staring at his dreams going up in flames because Saul has declined so quickly. And God's like, dude, what what are you doing there? I got it covered. I already rejected him. Like, don't worry. I got it covered. There's another one. And then, then he tells them there, I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. He's not talking about tubas. He's talking about you know, a horn of an animal which was used to carry oil. And he wants him to go and anoint a future person to be king. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. He's he's gently turning Samuel's face to look at him. So if you have ever had dashed hopes and given into despair over what was, it's hard to think straight, right? It's hard to see clearly about the past and hard to see clearly about the present, hard to see about the future because you're just staring about and replaying all the bad that just happened to you just now. But God wants Samuel's focus on him, his plan and his sovereignty and that he would fulfill it all. I have rejected him. I will send you to Jesse for I have provided for myself a king. Sometimes we need that, right? In our own grief and confusion, when we don't know what to do, it's so helpful to be reminded of what God Himself, our sovereign God, all-wise God, all-knowing God, all-powerful God, and what He is doing. Samuel is actually just like us. Samuel's a work in progress, right? He hears God's command, His plan, and then what does he do? He fears, right? Sovereign God just speaks to him, and and yet he still fears. And Samuel said there in verse 2, How can I go? 
how can I go? After hearing everything about what God is going to do, he says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. He's fearful. I'm really glad this story is in the Bible, and I hope that you guys are too. Because even the prophet of God needs encouragement here. He struggles just like we do. There's, a, there's a, an incredible amount of depth to Samuel who grieves over appropriate things even here. It's not, these, these things aren't bad, right? He had hopes for good, hope for a good king. He had hopes for the nation's godliness. He had hopes for God's blessing upon Israel. All good stuff. And so his mourning is very appropriate on a certain level. We too, right? We hope in good things. We might hope in a leader to lead us. We might hope in a husband or a wife who takes purity seriously, for example. Right? That's a wonderful thing to hope in. We might have a hope that children would come to believe in Jesus Christ one day. That's a wonderful thing to hope in. We might hope that if we are faithful at work, we might get that, that promotion one day. That's good to hope in. But even those hopes can be dashed when we have so linked our own hopes to them, when we have stored up our destinies with them as if they deliver us. And so when those things kind of crumble, we mourn. We know it's what it's like to be like Samuel here. But where hopes are dashed, which leads to despair, God calls us once again to trust in him who is our final hope. And this is what he does with Samuel. He intends his spirit to be lifted in looking to the God of the heavens and his plan, his power, and that in everything he's working all things out for his glory and for his people's good, according to his will. Honestly, though, Samuel, you can imagine, right, if you yourself have wrestled with grief, if, you know, things have not worked out the way you've wanted to and you've sort of struggled with despair and discouragement, you might walk around a bit with a limp for a while. You might still bear open wounds for a little while. And I think that's what's, what happens with Samuel here. That is why he, he is afraid. It's why he fears because Saul looms large. And it makes us ask whether God will actually come through at the end of the story. So going back to the narrative here, look at verse 4 and 5. What happened? What's the resolution? Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? Which more, I think, is a reflection of the fact that they recognize Samuel's authority on behalf of God. And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. God gives them this plan. He says, Take a heifer. Let's make this thing about sacrifice, which was legitimate. Sacrifices were to happen regularly. In fact, they happened every single day, morning and then basically at, dawn, at um, dusk. And so he's, he's just going about his sacrifices. He says, look, yes, take a heifer, make it about sacrifice, not about kingship, at least publicly. We see as things unfold there in verse 6. Um, when they came, look what happens, right? Jesse and his sons, they come at his arrival. They're going to sacrifice. They recognize the prophet of God has come. They're going to offer sacrifices together. And when he came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Actually, Samuel's struggling here. You don't quite see it, but he is actually struggling. Because you've got to think about what did the Lord just require of him? He required Samuel to listen and then act, anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And then so he arrives at the family, Jesse and his sons come and boom, surely the Lord's anointed is before God right here in this man. There's something that makes him so sure. What, what is it? Well, you see God's corrective there in verse 7. What does he say? 
But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. It, it appears that Samuel is looking for a leader just like Saul in some ways, right? You think back to nine, chapter 9, verse 2, you think about um, all the things that stood out there in that description of Saul. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome. That's appearance. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any other people. That's height of his stature. Here he sees these things, and then he assumes this man will make a good leader. Samuel is not alone in misjudging the qualities for leadership among God's people, is he? Christians do the same thing. We might even take the world's standards of leadership and simply just adopt them for the church. We see a man or woman successful in business. Someone, let's say, with an entrepreneurial spirit or, or someone good in the political sphere or someone with a lot of university degrees, or someone with a lot of wealth, and say, let's make him a leader of souls, a leader of God's people. But here, as Samuel sees, as he looks, and then as he hears God say, no, let me correct you, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Appearances fail, don't they? Or our judgments based on appearances fail what then do we have to bank on what then should we be looking at well you look there in verse 7 what does god himself look at do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because i have rejected him for the lord sees not as man sees man looks on outward appearance but the lord looks at the heart looks on the heart to god what is important is the heart that is one's love for god in taking christ's very purposes to be his own very purposes Christ very loves to be our own very loves. God desires that those who lead his people have a heart for him first and foremost. This is a strong reminder to us as pastors. I mean, it applies, it applies across the board. It applies to women, it applies to men, both in the family, whether you are a mother or a father or you're, you're a supervisor uh, in your workplace or you're taking care of children, you're single mom, single dad. It applies to everybody, really that we should be focusing on the heart. But, but since we're dealing with leadership here and a king over God's people, leadership over God's people, I think it's very appropriate to focus on addressing pastors here. This should lead us to check ourselves, pastors. There's four of us here. Amidst all that we do, the preaching and the teaching, the discipling and the counseling, the mission trips, the admin, the glorious admin, the planning and the meetings, this passage calls us, checks us, calls us to examine our own hearts for Jesus Christ. And whether our daily actions and routines even work to cultivate our love for Him. Now again, if you are leading anyone, this applies to you. So don't check out here if you're not a pastor. If, friends, if you look at your calendar, pastors, if you look at your calendar, how would it reflect a heart that beats for Christ and his things. If you look at how you start your day, before you get to all the busyness of your day, all the tasks and the responsibilities and the words that you're going to be speaking to your wife and your children and everybody else, if you look at the, your morning routine, would it show that you have a heart that depends upon Jesus? If you look at your evenings and how you use family time, for example, 
where you're directing your family, who you're having over and things like this, how you use your weekends? Does it show that you have a heart that beats after Christ and His church? Thinking about the stuff in the head, by what you think about or daydream about, does it reflect a preoccupation to carry out God's mission for you in your locale, in your family, and in this church? Or thinking about whose voice looms large in your own heart and whose presence uh, looms large in your own minds. Is it your boss, ultimately, and what he wants, she wants? Is it your family and what they want? Or is it the Lord who's made everything and them included? Are your thoughts more about how to please others so that you might climb up the corporate ladder to one day when you're 75, retire with this or that amount, or this or that much respect? Or is it about the Lord and His Word and what He has said pleases Him? Elders, let me encourage us all to shepherd one another and shepherd our own hearts and cultivate our hearts that we would love our Father in heaven. Just as we cultivate our children's sensitivity to our own Word, you know how we give so much time to making sure they listen and hear and obey and trust Let's give attention to our own sensitivity to the Lord's word that we too might obey in love and joy. Let me encourage you to tend to your own love for Christ and God will use you to shepherd his sheep. Love for Christ is the defining mark of a pastor. Just as Jesus made clear to Peter. What did Jesus make clear to Peter by way of examination, by way of questioning, before he charged Peter to shepherd his flock? Peter, do you love me? Yes, three times, great, feed my flock then. That is what qualifies a love for Jesus Christ. Maybe you are here today and you're exploring Christianity. Maybe you're exploring what First Baptist Church is all about. I hope you see that from this passage, uh, that those who lead, lead God's people have a very different set of qualifications for leadership than the world's organizations. A church's pastor must love Christ. We just looked at that. A church's pastor must also be formed by Christ's word, formed by Christ's word, right? Christ's sheep are to be fed Christ's word, that is the word of God. And so one of the main qualifications that distinguishes the pastor from another leader, that is a deacon, we have elders and we have deacons in the church, two offices of leadership. What distinguishes the uh, elder from the deacon is not a character difference, but a teaching difference. It's an ability, a God-given ability to handle the word of God rightly as God equips the church with, gives his people gifts. So he gives some the ability to handle God's word and a desire to handle God's word in effort to shepherd God's people. Just as Jesus said here, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 4, verse 4. This is the qualification here of the elder in terms of ability that he is to be able to handle the word of God so that Christ's people will be formed according to the word of God. And so this is why we preach through books of the Bible, just walking through Scripture and seeing what it says and then applying it to ourselves today as we seek to exalt Jesus Christ. Not only must a church's pastor love Christ, be loved or be formed to Christ's word, a church's pastors or yeah, a church's pastors must be formed to Christ's character. There are indeed character qualifications for being a pastor. As the Apostle Paul states that a church's leaders are to be godly like Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about that, you can look at First Timothy as well as Titus. 
course, this does not mean, friend, if you're visiting with us, it doesn't mean that your pastors or the pastors here at this church are going to be perfect. If you lived in my house or any other pastor's house or seen our interactions intimately, you know that we are repenting sinners just like all other Christians, every other member right here. And though pastors too are repenting sinners, the elders are to be nevertheless exemplars in godliness and holiness, so much so that we are to have a good reputation within the church that calls us to be their pastors, as well as a good reputation to those outside among Christians and non-Christians. You know, all of these commitments that I just mentioned are all in line with the gospel that we are to preach, aren't they? All of the things that I just mentioned, those three things, a love for God, formed by His Word, formed to Jesus Christ, they all coincide with the gospel that we are to preach, the gospel that the church is to be known by. And you see this here, a heart for God. Well, why is that? Because God is the one who delivered us. God is the one who made us in His image to be in a relationship with Him. We're supposed to be thanking God, right, as we depend upon Him. He is the great independent being, and we are the dependents. He made us to be in a relationship with Him, and we love our Creator. Oh, it's a heart for God. But then this, this love for God takes on a wonderful depth, knowing that our Creator loves us despite our rebellion against Him. We all rebelled against Him, earned just judgment, judgment in hell even, but what does God do? Our very own Creator delivers us. He saves us, and so He is our Savior, though we sinned against Him. He sends Jesus Christ to live the perfect life that we should have under the law. He dies the death that we should have. Right? We had earned God's wrath. Jesus Christ takes that upon himself for his people. He bears the wrath that we deserve. He dies on the cross. Three days later, he gets up from the grave. Right? You see that wonderful love there that our creator has for us. He's creator. He's also savior. And so that, that love has great complexity and depth there. Right? So we have a love for God, a heart for God, requirement of all pastors. You see, too, that we are supposed to be formed by his word. Right? We are saved by God's word. We're saved by Christ, and we are to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so this love for God manifests itself in the ways in which a pastor, and Lord willing, every Christian, seeks out more of the words of God. Because we want to do His will, of course, just like any good, loving child would do. So pastors are to lead others to do the same, to know and to love their Savior and to do His will. We are also to be formed to his character. In it all, what is God doing? Well, in Christ, he is making a people who would display his glory, his character to the, to the watching world. And they would have pastors who preach this gospel and then also display God's power to save in our own lives as he frees us from the tyranny of sin. So non-Christian, you know, if you want to get together with coffee, I'm happy to get together with co- uh, over coffee with you. I can talk to you about how God has liberated me from the power of sin and now how I want to turn away from those things. And every elder here will say the exact same and give you a same testimony. God has so freed us in Jesus Christ and now we have a heart for God. We want to be formed to his character as well and we want to live according to his word. That's what we are to be about. In fact, that's what God desires of everybody, that they too, not just pastors, everybody would have a heart for their creator, that is God. And we can actually do this and have this, possess this. If we repent of our sins, that is, turn from our sins and trust on Him, the Bible says that He will forgive us our sins and bring us back into a relationship with God. And that is like the parent, the kid who has run away, he comes back to live underneath the Father's rule, His loving reign, and, and it, the Father gives us His very presence. 
So friends, let me encourage you to repent of your sins and believe on Jesus and you too will have a heart for God restored to your very own maker. Well, given these things are the things that God is concerned about. Therefore, these are the things that church leaders ought to be concerned about as well. And I hope that these priorities are even reflected here in the service, right? So once again, if you're visiting with us and you want to know what are we about, well, just look at the service. A heart for God. Well, before, as we gather before his presence, we want to be singing his praises because we love him. We want to hear from his word because we trust in him and his goodness. We also want to respond to him in this wonderful worship. We want to be formed by his word. And so we're listening to, you know, a 50 to 60 minute long sermon here. We hear the word read as David read earlier from the book of Acts. And we too pray, as we have prayed already, that God's word would be true in our own lives and that we would respond according to his spirit, that we would be formed to Christ according to his word. Back to the account here. If you look and see what happens, let's go ahead and look at verse 8. Um, he already looked upon Eliab, and now we see what happens. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. So you see there what's going on, but something is interesting here. Samuel knows the Lord has told him that there is one that, that will come. And so Samuel simply says there in 11, are all your sons here? Because he knows that there is a chosen one among them. Are all your sons here? And then he says, as, and he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Now, this is interesting there in verse 11. He says, there is this youngest one, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Now, we don't know if Jesse's remark is dismissive of the youngest one, as in like, oh, he's just a little kid and, you know, all he's good for is watching sheep at this point in time. Or is Jesse really saying something like, we don't want to leave our sheep unattended uh, or something like it is just going to take too long to go and get him. So, you know, let's just leave him out there. But the fact that Jesse does emphasize that there is the youngest son, I think does hint perhaps to the fact that no one would really choose him for anything but watching sheep. But as God is working out his plan, Samuel has Jesse send for him. You go and look there. Um, look there in verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And he said, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. It's interesting that we're given the detail about this brother, the youngest brother, being handsome. It teaches us that God does not outright reject handsomeness. So if you consider yourself handsome, or let's, let's say if another person might consider you handsome, you know, don't worry, the Lord's not going to reject you because you are handsome. You don't have to worry about that. But we do know that handsomeness is not automatically right, a disqualifier. He may you know, use it to his glory, but it's not automatically a, uh, uh, we know that it's not a disqualifier. We can, in fact, look at Jesus as the great example. If 
you remember what is said about Jesus in Isaiah 52, verse 3, one translation puts it this way. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. This is a check, isn't it, too? You know, I joked around about, you know, maybe wives or girlfriends thinking their significant other is handsome. This should be a check also to, to us, men or women, if we think, if, our, if a qualifier for who will make a good partner for us for the rest of our life, if beauty is all the way up there on number one, this person must be a 10. Friends, I think if you're a gal here, I think you would basically reject Jesus. If that's the case, then I think you got, we all might have some strange qualifiers here. If we ourselves reject the Lord and Savior of the universe. Church, with the, wor- with the world's standards of leadership, I hope you en- are encouraged first and foremost by a godly heart, or as I've put it before, just regular old godliness. What's interesting is that what might be considered just regular old godliness, from a divine perspective, is supernatural, spirit-wrought godliness. I'm not saying that we should be unappreciative of leadership in secular organizations, Christian or non-Christian, I think we should be. That's God's common grace to us. If you think about the general that leads, you know, all of the men. You think about business folks who oversee thousands of people. You think about teachers that oversee. You know, there's lots of different positions here that where one has to exercise a degree of leadership, you know, whether or not under the Christian umbrella or not. We should appreciate those types of folks who possess leadership abilities, who use them to serve others by God's common grace. But I pray for us as Christians, our hearts hearts would be in such lockstep with God and His kingdom that we would first and foremost desire to be men and women of God found here in Scripture, in the pages of Scripture, in this very church where God has provided them, and in your families. I pray that in the last days when God calls us to account, we would not have to confess that we chase the marks of secular leadership in the world's organizations over and above the qualities of Christian maturity and leadership in God's church. How many men and women will give themselves to studying, mastering secular ideas of leadership to the exclusion, unfortunately, or with greater vigor, unfortunately, than the wonderful qualities of godliness, Christ-likeness. May it never be that we all would be giving ourselves to those things more than or with greater priority than being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Given the only entity on the planet that God has promised to build and to be with until the end of the age is the church, let us then give our best energy, our best effort, to God's kingdom, leadership in it, the qualities of godliness found in it, and the gospel of that kingdom. So that's the first section there. God chooses himself a king for his people. And the second point is much shorter, or the second section, I should say. We're going to spend a much shorter time here on this. The irony, as we move from the first section to the second section, is that while God is choosing a king for for his people... Saul chooses a servant for himself. He's still looking at man the way man looks at man. 
Man really does not see what the Lord sees, and this is what we see here in this passage. The events that go on here in, in chapter 16, right, they work to set us up for the rest of the book. That's what's going on here in chapter 16. It sets us up for this interchange that's going to happen between Saul and King David, who eventually will become king, and then one day he will succeed Saul. And there's tons of drama between Saul and everybody else who stands in his way. He tries to kill uh, David, for example, this youngest brother. We haven't quite come to his name. Or actually, we, yeah, we haven't quite come to his name yet, but we're going to get there. And then he also tries to kill David's best friend, that is Jonathan, Saul's very own son. You look there at this climax here in verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now look at this transition. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Actually, let's just continue. Let's just continue reading on. Let the Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre or harp. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Interesting how this drama begins, right? We know it's going to come up, but interesting how the drama begins right here, right now. It's not with Saul gathering his troops, marching out upon hearing about what happens here with Samuel and, and uh, David to kill David. No, it starts off with Saul, this disturbed king, Randomly, it seems, bringing this little shepherd boy, who nevertheless is known for valor and courage and things like this, into his service. He has no idea who this David is, right? You realize that the only ones who know that David is going to be king at this point in time is really, as far as we know, is just God and then Samuel. And as the section opens, we see this contrast drawn between Samuel and David, right? The spirit rushes upon David, anointing him for his service at that particular time to the Lord and then ultimately for king, kingship. He's eventually crowned king, or um, yeah, that happens in 2 Samuel. And then you see the Lord departing from Saul, the presence of the Lord, this anointing from the Lord departing, and then a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. This is a huge turning point in the book. The empowerment and presence of the Lord is with David, this little shepherd boy, and that same empowerment and presence is removed from King Saul. Now, what in the world is going on with this harmful spirit of the Lord, as the ESV translates it? Some of your, your translations might even read an evil spirit. The phrase comes up at least two more times in the book, at least according to my count. What exactly is this harmful spirit? Some translation, again, may read evil spirit, as if the Lord is sending out evil beings uh, to go and disturb others. This, this actually happens elsewhere in Scripture, so it is a legitimate way to understand the grammar. We also know that it's a legitimate um, thing to happen because we see it going on in Scripture. Uh, think about the account of Job, right? There, God calls Satan to account, and, and, and Satan is roaming the world uh, looking for someone to take down. He's trying to take down the godly. And in an object lesson to Satan and every single one of us, God, knowing that Satan was trying to bring down the godly, God tells him to consider Job. I want you to consider Job. He is a righteous man, and he will not reject me. 
And Satan is granted permission to do everything but harm his body. Basically kill him. Why is that? Because God knew that Job would prove, he would prove to Satan and everybody else, us included, that God is worth glorying in no matter the circumstance. Object lesson. So, you know, in one sense, one could understand the passage in that way. But while the phrase in Hebrew could read and be understood in that way, it could also be translated and understood as God giving Saul a spirit that intends evil. A spirit that intends evil or a spirit of harm, another way, a spirit that brings forth harm. So don't think of evil being, think of inner constitution. The very person is becoming like this. We see that Nebuchadnezzar, for example, too, he has a certain spirit that makes him crazy in the book of Daniel. So here you see Saul, if it is, if it is right that this is a spirit that intends evil, he's having like these fits of rage. And if we have fits of rage, which I know some of us you know, may and do, really this is what's going on here with Saul. And what happens? Like how is Saul calmed? Well, we just read he's calmed by music. Just like we all might be calmed by music, if we are anxious or whatever, we put on our headphones and we're going to listen to something. In, in similar ways, that's what's going on here, David. He's playing the harp and Saul, he gets calmed. You look in verse 19, therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread. These are the, like the customary gifts here. He's, talking, he's sending a gift to the king. Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And look at this. This is how the drama begins. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And then, of course, you have this resolution. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed. And was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So you see here that there's some, there's an insertion. It seems like this is a regular pattern for Saul. That seems to be what's going on here. It comes and goes, and so David plays the harp and calms Saul's spirit there, the spirit that intends to bring forth harm, if that's indeed the way that one should read it. Interestingly enough, this uh, phrase here, the spirit of harm, it comes up two more times, at least in my count in 1 Samuel 18 and 19, and in both of those accounts, the spirit of harm comes on and he's literally trying to kill David, trying to kill him with his spear. So anyways, if it is an evil spirit, then it is a bad spirit going to torment. If it is a spirit that brings forth harm, then we are talking about Saul's disposition. Regardless of how one understands this phrase, it's clear that it is ultimately of God. As a judgment, really, of Saul. And as God is working to bring about God's own plan, for David to succeed Saul as king. So he, here he see, we see that uh, this muse David enters into his service to calm him. This is an interesting turn of events here as we move towards uh, you know, the last 10 minutes here of this sermon. It's an interesting uh, turn of events. Verse 19, we see Saul brings David into his presence and Jesse sends these customary gifts. We see there that Saul loves David. David finds favor with King Saul. And again, it sets us up for the rest of the book. It's all drama. Here we have the king hiring the one who would soon succeed him. 
Saul here ends up loving David, taking him into his confidence, but soon, because of his own pride and insecurities, he goes from loving David to flip over to 1829. Flip, flip over to 1829. He goes from loving David to, quote, becoming David's enemy continually. He becomes his enemy continually. Why is that? Really, it's because of his faithful service to God. Saul loves him when he plays the liar as a servant, loves him in an ar- as an armor bearer so far as it serves his purposes, but he comes to hate him because he serves the Lord. And then for David, David learns to serve the Lord faithfully, right? No matter the capacity, no matter the gifting, whether he is playing the harp, slaying giants, or leading his king, he learns to serve the Lord so faithfully. And he eventually comes to take over the throne of the king. His heart for the Lord and his righteousness is evident. Remember that? He's a man after God's own heart. You know, it's fascinating. God will go on to try and once again kill David and Jonathan. But at one point in the story, we see David striving to honor the Lord so much that when David has the opportunity to kill Saul and be free from this fear of death, he doesn't take it. That's like one of the most popular stories in the book of 1 Samuel, where where, where David comes in nighttime uh, to, to almost kill Saul, but lets him live, all because he desires to honor the Lord and be faithful in righteousness. But it is for these things that Saul amazingly comes actually to acknowledge David's godliness. Because even though Saul meant these things for harm, David repaid him with good. And Saul, even though Saul does not finally change, he even prays blessings on David, thanking him for his righteousness. You'll see that later on later on in the account of 1 Samuel. This is incredible. When you, look at our, when you take our chapter and then 1 and 2 Samuel from a bird's eye perspective, what a setup for David to succeed Saul. And then an even bigger setup for the future king, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Just as David was the unexpected king from a family of relatively little status, Bethlehemite, so Jesus is the unexpected king and savior of God's people from the same hometown as David, that is Bethlehem. David was a man after God's own heart, but many of us know the story, he is still sinful. Well, thank God for the true king, Jesus Christ, the God-man, perfect in his righteousness. And through him, he credits his own righteousness to his people. Just as David came to serve his persecutor even, who sought to murder him, so Jesus served his persecutors, those who would not only seek his murder, but who would accomplish it. Where King Saul failed to kill David, King Herod and the Jews would succeed in killing and crucifying Jesus. But what is astounding is that all of this was according to God's plan as he determined. Strangely enough, even the sin of Herod and the Jews together with the Romans could not stop God from accomplishing his very own salvation in Christ. In fact, no matter what sin the Jews and the Romans threw at Jesus Christ, God used them to bring about the very salvation of those who would trust and believe in him. In Christ, God provided for his people a king, even though many judged him to be nothing but a criminal. All that is to be appreciated in David we see in Christ times infinity. Thank God for David that we might see and appreciate him and see how God uses him. But ultimately, we are to appreciate the one that he points to, ultimately. 
and in fact, the one that he depends on his very own heart is dependent upon this very forgiving God, Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are our all-wise God. And Lord, we learned so many lessons from this chapter of Scripture. We thank you, Lord, that you so gently turn our faces to you so that we might look upon you and have such confidence in the fact that you are our shepherd and king and ruler and creator, working all things out for your glory and for our good. Lord, we thank you, too, that this is not just a story about kingship, human kingship at least, but it is about the story of the kingship of the God-man ultimately, Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, the ruler over all. We know, Lord Jesus Christ, that you are the one who deserves all praise and glory. And where we see such mercy in David sparing Saul even, his own persecutor, Lord, we, we gaze upon Jesus Christ and we see you in the midst of your own suffering, trusting in your Father's will, trusting in what would come, that you would, in fact, be delivered from death. And even despite the fact that you had persecutors, Lord, you died on the cross, embracing persecution so that others would live. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your grace shown all in this gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you rule and reign because You are a God of righteousness and mercy who rules and reigns in a way that no man would ever do because we are sinners and you are not. Because we have hearts that seek to idolize other things, hearts that turn away from you. And you, Lord Jesus, are absolutely holy and righteous. We pray, Lord, that you would help us trust you in all things, that you would, in fact, help us trust you to rule over our very own lives. We thank you for the redemption that we have In Jesus Christ, in your name we pray, amen.